Welcome to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcast, featuring lectures and conversations presented here at New York Historical's Robert H. Smith Auditorium. The New York Historical Society is a preeminent educational and research institution that is home to both New York City's oldest museum and one of the nation's most distinguished research libraries. This podcast, recorded live on Tuesday, February 20th, 2018, is a Sandra and Richard Rippey lecture on American history. Historian Richard Brookheiser is interviewed by New York Historical's Vice President for Public Programs, Dale Gregory, on Governor Morris's experience at the Constitutional Convention. And now, enjoy the podcast. Thank you all for coming. Uh, we're here to talk about uh, one of the most important events in my hero's life, Governor Morris, and certainly one of the most important events in our country's life, the Constitutional Convention, which met in Philadelphia from May 1787 to September 1787 and produced the United States Constitution. Uh, this picture here... Oh, excuse me, Rick. Could you just turn the lights down a little bit so we can see the picture better? Okay, is it popping out more? Yeah. Okay, the artist of this picture is a man named Howard Chandler Christie. And has anybody here ever gone to the restaurant Café des Artistes, which used to be? Okay. So you, you, you know the murals there. He's, he's best known for his scantily clad women. But um, he was commissioned to do this picture of these very well-clad gentlemen. Uh, it hangs now in the, a, a hallway of the House of Representatives. It's a, a huge uh, canvas, 20 by 30. So he has here, he's imagined all the men who signed the Constitution, the 39 men who, who stayed it out until the very end in September and who agreed with the document. Uh, the three people at the end who did not sign, which included George Mason uh, and Edmund Randolph, are not depicted. So uh, obviously this is George Washington, uh, as usual, the coolest man in any room in his black. I, I love these gold coats here and, and over here. That's Charles Pinckney of South Carolina. Uh, this is Daniel of St. Thomas Jennifer from Maryland. His first name was Daniel of St. Thomas, not Daniel. He had a brother named Daniel, but he was Daniel of St. Thomas. Don't ask me why, I don't know, but that was his name. Uh, here is Alexander Hamilton um, saying something to Benjamin Franklin. Maybe, you know, buy low, sell high, and Franklin <laughs> is saying, I know that already. Uh, this is James Madison, uh, as usual, writing everything down. Uh, he attended every session of the Constitutional Convention and kept notes because before they met, he had done a study of constitutions throughout history, and he had been disappointed to find the spottiness of the records. So he wanted to make sure that when this Constitution was written, there was a complete record of what had gone on. So he, he nominated himself to do that. And here is Governor Morris. Oh, let me just tell you about this man here. See that forehead? That's Jacob Broom. And the reason we can only see his forehead, he's from Delaware, is we don't know what he looked like. He is the only signer of the Constitution of which we have neither an image nor a description. So this is a problem for all depictions of it. Has anyone been to the National Constitution Center in Philadelphia? and seen they have a room with life-size statues of all the signers in it in bronze. 
And when I first saw it, when, when I was being led into the room, I said, how would you handle Jacob Broom? And they said, well, come over here. So they have a man, sort of a generic man, standing there, and he's going like this. <laughs> so this was Howard Chandler Christie's solution. But here is Governor Morris, uh, born and raised in New York, but he is attending the convention as a delegate from Pennsylvania because he's been living and working there for a number of years. So they choose him along with uh, Franklin, uh, James Wilson here in the spectacles. He's a delegate from Pennsylvania. Now he but, was about 36? Yes. But what this image does not show you is this. Uh, this is owned by the New York Historical Society. This is one of his peg legs. And he lost his left leg in 1780, uh, seven years before the Constitutional Convention meets. He was living in Philadelphia. Uh, he was getting into his carriage when he slipped and caught his left foot in one of the wheels. And the carriage started up. His ankle was severely dislocated. His own doctor was out of town, so other physicians consulted, and they said to him, uh, we're going to have to cut the leg off at the knee. And he said, without hesitation, he said, fine, do it. Uh, and then when his own doctor returned and saw what had happened and had a description of the injury, uh, his own doctor told Morris, you know, I don't think you had to have your leg cut off. So... Uh, and this, this had to have an effect on this man. He was tall. He was athletic and active all his life. Uh, he hiked. Uh, he um, boated. He danced. Uh, he was, if not handsome, he was attractive and impressive. He was certainly a ladies' man. But he always has to be, have this uh, with him. And I think it made him sympathetic to people in distress. We won't hear about that so much uh, tonight with the Constitutional Convention, but we will uh, the next lecture when we get to the French Revolution. So um, the only other thing about the loss of his leg is that uh, John Jay, who was a dear old friend of his, another fellow, fellow another New Yorker, um, Jay is a, a diplomat in Spain when this accident happens, and he writes a letter to Robert Morris, uh, no relation to, to Governor, although they knew each other. And Jay says, uh, well, I heard that uh, Governor Morris lost his leg. He might better have lost something else. That's uh, referring to his reputation as a ladies' man. <laughs> so, uh, okay, so back to the Constitutional Convention. Now, Dale, fire away. Okay. So... Well after, I think it was well after, the Constitution was signed, Gouverneur Morris was quoted as saying the fate of America was suspended by a hair. Well, right. That's what, that's what these men thought. Um, the big problem was debt. Uh, wars cost money. Uh, the revolution had been over for four years, and it had been successful. We had won. Uh, but we were quite broke by the end of it. The, the government was broke. The larder was bare. 
Uh, Robert Morris, who had been running our finances, had used every trick in the book. Uh, now, he, at that point, were they still not able to pay the Continental Army? Yes. Well, the, yes, this is the problem. The um, soldiers and officers were sent home with IOUs. Um, one, they had tried um, issuing their own money. Then it had inflated away. It was almost valueless. Then they, they, in 1780, they called in all the old dollars and said, well, we're going to issue new dollars at a ratio of 40 to 1. But then those new dollars started inflating. Um, you know, it was just hellacious. We borrowed money abroad. We borrowed money from France. We borrowed money from Dutch bankers. Uh, Robert Morris uh, put up some of his own personal credit. He was the richest man in America. Now, Rick, could you compare the debt then to the debt now? Well, the, uh, it's, it's smaller, obviously. It's way smaller in dollar terms and perhaps even absolutely. But the big difference is uh, that now the federal government is able to tax, but then it was unable to do so. Uh, the Continental Congress could make requisitions upon the states. In other words, they could ask them for money. They'd say, you know, here's what we're spending, here's what we need, we would like X from Pennsylvania. But Pennsylvania didn't have to come up with that money. Uh, if it was unable to or if it was unwilling to, it just didn't. And there was no provision for the Continental Congress to get that money. And this is what we explored in the program, Hamilton's Best Friend at Valley Forge, our last one, Gouverneur Morris was sent to Valley Forge yes. to... To report to the Continental Congress on the condition of the army, and he was appalled. He saw they, they were underclothed, they were underfed, they were undersupplied, and he, you know, he, he had a kind of romantic um, fondness for the army. He, he never fought himself, but he admired the men who were doing it. And, and he just thought the fact that we're treating them in this fashion is, is, is unacceptable. So his, his um, distress over our financial incapacity goes back to Valley Forge. Yeah. And uh, the problem is never really addressed um, throughout the whole length of the war. We do patches and we do fixes. And we're able to get through the Yorktown campaign. But uh, after the war is over, and then, you know, after the war is over and we've won, then the urgency seems to be off, right? So, so people just think, okay, fine, we, we got through it all, so, so we can just continue to bumble along. But uh, our debt was selling in Europe at a quarter to a third of its value. I mean, which I think is junk. Uh, if there's anyone in finance here, correct me if I'm wrong. But I, I, don't, I don't think that's good uh, to have your debt being traded at that level. So um, all these men, all these men were, were worried about this. Uh, they were also worried about immediate domestic consequences. Um, the United States had its own debts, but each of the 13 states also had debts because each of the states had spent money in order to get through the war. And some of the states uh, tried ways to pay off that debt, which caused other problems. Massachusetts had run up some of the largest debts. That's where the war begins with Lexington and Concord. Uh, they tried a tax on land, 
Well, a land tax hits farmers hardest because they have the most land, and many of them don't have a lot of money. They're they're wealthy farmers, but they're a lot of average and poor farmers. So they were really suffering from this land tax. And in the winter of uh, 1785-86, there's a rebellion in western Massachusetts. Um, One of the leaders is a man called Daniel Shays. He'd been a captain in the Revolution, and we now know it as Shays' Rebellion. I mean, it wasn't all his show, but Mm -hmm. his name got attached to it. And um, Washington, uh, Madison, they're very alarmed by the reports they're getting from New England of what's going on. I mean, here we've won our war, and already there's a rebellion in one of the the largest states. Uh, So there was... There was a lot of anxiety, and uh, there had been a conference in Annapolis, Maryland in 1786 to just look at commercial problems, because under the, uh, the, the old system of government, uh, states could erect tariffs against each other. So if, if you were trying to ship goods from uh, New York uh, to New Jersey, uh, New York could you know, if you were on the New Jersey side waiting for your stuff, New York could charge it as it crosses the border. And, and this is a problem, particularly for a state like New Jersey, which doesn't have deep water ports, unlike New York Harbor. Um, New Jersey called itself a cask tapped at both ends because they were being hit by stuff coming into Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, New York City, New York. Uh, There were also all sorts of complications with Chesapeake Bay. Um, You know, the entrance to Chesapeake Bay is Virginia on either side. There's the Delmarva Peninsula and then southeastern Virginia. But half of the bay, when you get in it, is Maryland. So is Virginia charging tolls at the entrance to it? Uh, Who pays for lighthouses in Chesapeake Bay? If you use the Potomac, it goes between Virginia and Maryland. I mean, who's responsible for, for, you know, clearing the river? Uh, The Susquehanna flows into Chesapeake Bay, and it's very important for for southern Pennsylvania, but it goes through Maryland. So again, does Pennsylvania get get screwed by Maryland? So there had been this conference in Annapolis to address those specific problems. Was George Washington there? No, he was not, but James Madison and Alexander Hamilton were there. And they saw an opportunity for larger, further reform. So they had the Annapolis Convention, which met in 1786, issue an appeal for a second meeting to address the larger problems. And um, the Continental Congress agrees to ask the states to send delegates to a meeting in Philadelphia in May of 1787. So that's why all these men are here. Now, these are 39 guys. These are the men who end up signing. And that was the Constitutional Convention. This is the Constitutional Convention. 55 men attend at one time or another. But, um, you know, some people leave midway through um, to attend to private uh, matters, personal matters, the New York delegation, it was three people, and two of them walked out halfway through because New York didn't really want a constitution. The governor was a man named DeWitt Clinton. You've got a great portrait of him here somewhere. Um, and he, he was just happy with the way things were. So, all right, he sent a delegation. 
and he, he let Hamilton be on it, even though um, he and Hamilton disagreed about this whole thing, but he stacked the delegation. It was a three-man delegation. So there's Hamilton, who's for a new constitution. Then he picks two other guys to always outvote him. Well, the two other guys left um, in June because they were disgusted with what the Constitutional Convention was doing. They thought it was changing too much. Who, who were they? Uh, there was a man named um, Robert Lansing and another named John Yates. Uh, one was a judge. One had been a mayor of Albany. And they were, you know, important local politicians. I mean, you know, Hamilton got the musical and the $10 bill, but, but these guys were also important in their day. Um, New Hampshire arrived late. Rhode Island never sent a delegation at all because they were perfectly happy with the status quo. So there were never um, more than 11 state delegations in this room at the time. Um, Hamilton, you know, after his, his two uh, pals leave, he really hardly attends the convention, but he comes back at the very end because he thinks it's important to sign it. So he's really only signing it as himself. He's not even representing New York. He's, he's identified as Mr. Hamilton of New York on the document. So they... Um, well, who, who were the most important delegates who were there from well, the beginning to end? I mean, I know they weren't there at all times, but... There are two people who attend every single session. Okay. James Madison. Uh, he is the first Virginian to arrive... He, he uh, reserves rooms for all the other Virginians. This is a little like Lou Gehrig. <laughs> well, yes, he is the he, one. He, he was always playing. He was always Gehrig. playing. <laughs> He's called the father of the Constitution, and the reason for that is he is a player at every phase, in the planning of it, in the session itself, and then in the ratification struggle, and then finally the Bill of Rights um, a year later. At every single phase, he's a major player. So he is the first Virginian to arrive. Uh, This man, James Wilson, he is a Pennsylvanian, so he lives here. Uh, He attends every session. But the person, and they give the second and third uh, largest number of speeches. But the person who gives the greatest number of speeches is our hero, Governor Morris, even though he misses a whole month. Uh, He shows up at the beginning, and then he takes off for June. He's just got private business back in New York. And he's not alone in this. There are delegates who come and go because uh, there's one man from Georgia who's going bankrupt. You know, so he, he leaves in the middle. And he's important because he writes sketches of all the other delegates. He's a man named William Pierce. So we've relied on his like pen portraits of all the delegates. But he, he, ta- he takes off. But so even though Morris misses the entire month of June, when he comes back, he really throws himself into things, and he ends up speaking even more often than Madison and Wilson, even though they attend every single day. Now, now, when people spoke, did did everyone listen, or was there, you know, is there any? There was a, there was a rule of procedure mm-hmm. that when someone had the floor, no one could walk between that speaker and the presiding officer. You know, that's just to keep control of the room. Um, There were some, like, parliamentary procedures about, you know, how often you could speak a second time to a motion. 
in Madison's notes, he, he, there's some, they're pretty even-handed, but it's clear there's some delegates he doesn't like. Uh, and there's a one man named Luther Martin uh, from Maryland who will go on to be uh, a famous uh, lawyer. But Madison really grumbles about his, you know, that he gives one speech that lasts for two days. And, you know, and Madison doesn't really record it very carefully. It's clear that he does not uh, like this. So guy. they didn't have a limit of time with their... No, Hamilton gives one speech that's uh, six hours. He takes a whole day. And did people day. stay or were they in and people's, out of the room? No, no, no. People stayed. They liked Hamilton's speech. I mean, they didn't listen to it. <laughs> they, or, or rather, they, they ignored it. They didn't do anything he suggested, but they, they complimented on it, him on it. They said it was you know, very intelligent, now, very well did delivered. did anyone take notes on these speeches? Was it Madison? Uh, N- Madison takes the most complete sets. There are some other sets. One of the New Yorkers who left kept a pretty complete set of all the stuff that he heard. And then there are some just little, you know, scrappy notes here and there of about a dozen other people. But, um, and then there, there was a secretary of the convention who was not a delegate who just recorded the, the eyes and the nays on every resolution. But, but, but the best set of notes are, are Madison's. So those guys are important. Uh, Roger Sherman, he's here from Connecticut. And he, he will um, be important in a, in a compromise over the representation, which is how are the states going to be represented in this new government? Are they going to be equal, or is it going to be according to their population? Now, under the old system, the Articles of Confederation, the Continental Congress, every state had one vote. So all the states were equal. Uh, Delaware is the smallest state. Virginia is the biggest. Uh, One-fifth of all Americans live in Virginia. That's how big Virginia is, relatively. But under the old system, they're all equal. Now, the big states, obviously, want the states to be represented by population. So this is Massachusetts, Pennsylvania, and Virginia. Those are the three largest states. And was that the Virginia plan? That was the Virginia plan. That was the, the first plan that was offered. It was um, given by Edmund Randolph, the governor. His picture is not in here because he didn't sign at the end of it. But he offers the Virginia plan, probably written mainly by Madison. And uh, this plan says that in the um, new legislature that we're going to have, it's going to be a two-house legislature, but both houses will be picked according to population. So that's very favorable to the large states. Then the little states uh, counterattack. Obviously, they're unhappy with this. And they pose the New Jersey plan, uh, which wants to keep at least one house with equal representation. And so they really, they go at it for a month. Uh, By the time Governor Morris comes back, he comes back at the nadir of the stalemate. One of the other delegates said we were at a full stop. And um, uh, my friend Governor Morris isn't very helpful. I mean, he gives one speech where he uh, says, you know, if, if the small states are, are not going to go along with this, the sword will have to, to settle the question, which um, the small states don't like that. Uh, and there's, there's a kind of an effort of four other speakers to hush him up and make him retract this. 
But the, the man who helps with the compromise uh, really is Roger Sherman here of Connecticut. Uh, he was once described as slippery as an eel. Uh, he was a very smart, completely self-taught lawyer. Uh, I think he started off as a shoemaker, but he taught himself the law. He signed the Stamp Act uh, protest at the Stamp Act Convention in New York in 1765. He signed the Declaration of Independence. He signed the Articles of Confederation. You know, he's been there for a long time, a very smart guy. And, and the compromise that they finally settle on is that one house, the House of Representatives, will be according to population, but another house, the Senate, all the states will be equal. So that's, that's the great structural compromise that gets made. Um, now, all right, we'll, we'll move on to that, move on right now. Um, could you talk about Gouverneur Morris's ideas about democracy? Right, he didn't. And his attack on the South and the West and the rich and how the rich and the poor should be separate in different branches. And this must have been another one of his speeches that he gave. Well, so, so you want me to put his uh, unbest foot forward. Well, <laughs> he, um, his personality was he, he was a very smart guy, uh, he could be funny. But he didn't suffer fools. And, you know, he sort of thought a lot of people were fools. And, and he would let you know that. Uh, if you were saying something that he thought was wrong uh, or stupid, um, he would say so. I mean, he'd do it in a kind of 18th century way. But he was, he was pretty blunt about it. Uh, for instance, he, he, he does uh, say, uh, he's a nationalist, by the way. Uh, he is not concerned uh, whether, whether the state should preserve their power under this new system. Um, he's seen the bad effects of that during the revolution. You know, we, we had a system where the state's powers were preserved and they were all equal and they didn't have to pay taxes, and he saw the result at Valley Forge. So he doesn't want to go through that again. So in one of his speeches, he said... Um, you know, we, we haven't done anything to talk about the, uh, the national greatness of America. And what would be the consequence if um, all the demagogues of all the states and all their state charters were thrown into the sea? Would this, would this have any bad effect on the, on the glories of America? No, it wouldn't. Um, so uh, that's an example of, of how uh, offensive he could be. Now, and this was recorded. Yeah, oh yes, Madison, well, Madison, you know, he, he takes notes on all these speeches, and then he, he, he adds um, in his own record as a note to himself that he did check some speeches with the people who gave them. And I think he mentions he checked one of Hamilton's speeches with Hamilton, but he also says he checked one of uh, Morris's speeches with Morris. And the way Madison put it was, when it stared him in the face, Morris said, yes, that's right. So, uh, so he, he okay. got Morris's approval to, to write the thing down. But uh, probably the most inflammatory speech he gives, it's related to the question of representation, but it's also related to the other uh, ugly sleeper issue in this whole convention, which is slavery. Uh, we have uh, half the states are slave states, 
Uh, the further south you go, the larger the role in the economy slavery plays. And uh, the states, South Carolina, where was Pinckney? Yes, here are two cousins named Pinckney from South Carolina. South Carolina uh, and Georgia and North Carolina will simply not join this government if restrictions are placed upon slavery or too many restrictions. Uh, One of them is, uh, should there be a a tax on the importation of slaves. This is something they're obviously very concerned about because they're still bringing slaves in. Uh, Another issue is the slave trade itself. How long should it be allowed to go on? Should it be stopped right then? Should it never be stopped? You know, this, this is an inflamed issue because already there is an international campaign against the slave trade. You have people in England like Wilberforce and Clarkson who are already campaigning against it. Um, a sentiment, uh, and this is, sentiment turns against the slave trade before it turns against slavery itself because the slave trade seems particularly cruel. Um, it's, it's, it's taking people from Africa. It's maintaining a continuous market for people. It's fomenting wars of conquest in Africa whose purpose is to accumulate captives to supply this transatlantic market. So related is how do slaves count in the representation? If population is a factor, whose population are we counting? Are we counting white people, free people, or are we also counting black slaves? Now, obviously, if you're a slave state, you want your slaves counted and you want them, you know, counted as whole persons because that will boost your representation. It's not going to help the slaves. They don't vote, you know, but you will be voting. You, the white southerner, will be voting in their behalf. Uh, The states without slaves or with very few slaves obviously don't want slaves counted in the representation. Now, we all know the compromise they end up with, which is the three-fifths rule. They'll count the slave as three-fifths of a person. And, you know, sometimes people talk about that, well, they only thought a a, a black slave was three-fifths of a person. Actually, three-fifths was better than counting him as one under this setup. Because if you counted him as one, you're just giving that much more power to the masters because they will vote that extra two-fifths. So this is being debated and debated, and my hero gives uh, really one of his most splendid uh, orations in in a lifetime of them. It's August 8th. So you have to imagine, have have people been in Philadelphia in the summer? (laughs) Okay, so you sort of know what this is like. Um, I think these fancy coats would have looked a little stained and ragged after five months. Also, the windows were not open. They were shuttered. This was a secret meeting. Um, The the minutes uh, were secret. No word was getting out. So here we are, August. They've been going since the end of May. And Morris rises to address this question of slavery in the representation. And he says, slavery is the curse of heaven on the states where it prevailed. 
Travel through the whole continent, and you behold the prospect continually varying with the appearance and disappearance of slavery. The moment you leave the New England states and enter New York, which is then a slave state, the effects of the institution become visible. Passing through New Jersey and entering Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania is a free state, every criterion of superior improvement witnesses the change. Proceed southwardly, and every step you take through the great region of slaves presents a desert increasing with the increasing proportion of these wretched beings. And then here's, here's his climax. Upon what principle is it that the slaves shall be computed in the representation? Are they men? Then make them citizens and let them vote. Are they property? Why then is no other property included? The houses in Philadelphia are worth more than all the wretched slaves which cover the rice swamps of South Carolina. That's a Morris touch. He's being very personal. South Carolina, you pink niece there. The admission of slaves into the representation when fairly explained comes to this, that the inhabitant of Georgia and South Carolina who goes to the coast of Africa and in defiance of the most sacred laws of humanity tears away his fellow creatures from their dearest connections and damns them to the most cruel bondages, shall have more votes in a government instituted for the protection of the rights of mankind than the citizen of Pennsylvania or New Jersey who views with a laudable horror so nefarious a practice. And, you know, you see that sense. It's like a Chinese screen. You know, you've got the South Carolinians and Georgians at one end of it. And then you've got the Pennsylvanians and the New Jerseyans at the other end of it. You've got the slave acquirers and the non-slave owners. And then as you get in the middle, you find that the act of enslaving people gives you more votes in a government to protect the rights of mankind. It's this, 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 he's like screwing in a screw. He wants to make the irony as biting and as tough and as bitter as possible. So that's, that's an example of him uh, firing on all cylinders. Um, it didn't work. I mean, it worked to the extent that, you know, three-fifths was the ratio rather than one. But um, he did his best. And, you know, that, that's one, one of his qualities was that he never held back. Uh, he always told you what was on his mind. But then when he lost, he was willing to go along with the majority and see what, what was the best that could be made of it. Now, it's very hot. He's given his speech. And they take a recess soon, don't they? They do take a recess, yes. Well, he they goes... take a recess, and he takes it with the man he admires most in the world. They go to Valley Forge, which is not that far away, and they go trout fishing. And Washington looks at the old embankments, which are still there. Um, we don't know what they said to each other or what they thought, but I think we can imagine. They thought, uh, well, we were here when it was a lot colder, and uh, we were here when it was a lot grimmer, 
And let's not, let's not let this all slide. Let's not let this fall apart. That would be a wonderful thing that they said. Well, we were just talking backstage. What might they have said and who is doing the cooking? <laughs> right. Well, I know probably Governor Morris brought the wine. I hope he did. Um, very little was known about good wine in late 18th century America. Thomas Jefferson knew, knew quite a bit about it. So did Governor Morris. Uh, George Washington, not. There's some letter he writes where he's, where he's writing about hock, uh, which is um, white wine, and he, he's clearly confused about the particular wine he's writing about. But Morris, um, in another letter, he refers to having a bottle of Cape wine, that is from South Africa, which was Constancia. Has anyone heard of that vintage? Uh, it's still pretty good. It was one of the best vintages in the late 18th century. And Morris uh, had some. So we can move on now. They have their little break. They trout fish. Do you, do you think Governor Morris did fishing also? He, I, I t- tell you, he was an athletic guy. Okay. He, um, he liked to... Uh, a boat. He um, he had property in upstate New York, uh, in the Genesee Valley River Valley, also up in the Adirondacks. He ultimately builds a summer house up there, and there's a little town called Governor. Um, they pronounce it Governor, where his summer house is still standing. So, um, yeah, I bet he uh, he cast his line pretty well. Okay, so they come back, and they are arranging new committees. They've had some committees before. Now there's some new committees to wrap this up. Well, right. They're coming down the home stretch. Um, it's uh, September. Uh, people want to get done with this thing. They want to get home. Now, there is a committee of detail which has uh, assembled all the resolutions um, that, that they've been voting on throughout the whole summer, and they prepare a draft. Of, of what, what this Constitution should be. And then this is given, uh, the delegates um, hammer over that for a while, then this is given to a committee of style, which is to write the final document. And there are five people on it. There's an older man from Connecticut uh, named Samuel Johnson. Uh, there is a delegate from Massachusetts named Rufus King. He will move to New York. His house is out in Queens. Then there is Madison... Hamilton, and Governor Morris. And um, this committee gives the job to Morris, and so he's to take uh, the report of the Committee of Detail and polish it up. And so what he does is what we now have is the Constitution. It's given back to the whole convention, and they do make a few little tweaks, but basically they accept the job he does. And he smooths and polishes all the resolutions, and he writes the preamble out of his own head. Uh, there, was, there was no model for that. Uh, in the Committee of Detail, all it is is um, uh, the, 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 the people of the states of, and it goes north to south, you know, New Hampshire, Massachusetts, and so on. Uh, so he, um, he gets rid of the list of states partly because Rhode Island isn't there. You know, you want to cover over that awkward fact. Also, New York has left. But he also, I think he's expressing his own nationalism because he replaces it with we the people of the United States. Well, what was there beforehand? 
Well, we the people of the states of. So that kind of makes it a document produced by states. But, you know, and he's not alone in thinking this. This this is not a state effort here. This is an effort of the people of the United States to fix the whole system. And it listed the states, didn't say New Hampshire. The first version did. The first version did. He gets rid of all that. So he says, we the people of the United States of America. And, you know, that's a phrase... It gets picked up by Chief Justice Marshall in some of his decisions. It's, it's elaborated by Daniel Webster in his reply to Robert Hayne. And then finally, Lincoln at the Gettysburg Address, does of the people, by the people, and for the people. But the, the germ from which all those iterations grow is Morris, we the people of the United States. Um, this is not the old system producing this Constitution. You know, it's not the Continental Congress doing it, and it is not the state legislatures. This is an act of the people. I mean, look, it's these 39 guys, but they are here because the people of the country agreed that things were not going right. And the proof of that was going to be, after, after they finish their work, it's going to be debated for a year, for an entire year, from September 87 to September 88. There is a ratification struggle, which is nationwide. It's not secret anymore. Everyone is all out there in the open talking and arguing. And, and this is the fulfillment of the phrase that Morris wrote, we the people. And um, Rick, do you want to hold your book up? We have it in the store in soft cover. It's so worth getting. This is getting. a rare hardcover. <laughs> rare hardcover. Because uh, Rick, um, in his book, um, has several of the passages and how Gubernur Morris changed them, and it's it's he was a wonderful. He was a great editor. Wonderful editor. Yeah, I've, I've been an editor myself. He did a good job. So, I, I had wanted to talk. That I was hesitating before I realized what what I didn't ask you. I don't know if we have time now. Is to go back. I know you briefly talked about how the delegates delegates were chosen, um, and a little more about each one, but. I think we'll put that on hold and go to the audience questions. Okay. And if we have time, uh, we'll, we'll see if we do. We'll double back. Well, yeah. Have time. Please. Okay. First question. Please discuss Hamilton's monarchy speech. Oh yes. Okay. Was he merely staring st- st- something out of bargain? Staring out a bargaining position. Okay. This was stating. stating? Probably stating. There's a big R here. I, I don't know what. Okay. Hamilton, this is the six-hour speech that Hamilton gives. It's not quite fair to say it's a monarchy speech. He wants uh, the executive to be chosen to serve for good behavior. In other words, you know, for life unless he commits some sort of crime. Uh, and, And, of course, he's not going to inherit the job. He's going to be chosen. He's, he's going to be selected by people who themselves have been elected. And there's no annual evaluation. He no. just keeps... No, he just, there he, there he is. Um, and he also, Hamilton being Hamilton, uh, you know, he's not, he's not shy about confronting objections. So he, you know, he says, well, is this a monarchy? Well, then you could say, 
you know, the, the proposal we have on the floor is to elect the executive for seven years. Well, then he'd be a monarch for seven years. So, you know, I'm not, I'm not afraid of the word, says Hamilton. Now, of course, the, the man who is taking notes on this is James Madison, who at this point is a good friend of Alexander Hamilton's. But in a few years, they will become political enemies, and Madison will show his notes to his better friend, Thomas Jefferson, and who is persuaded thereby that Hamilton is this bad, covert monarchist at heart. Now, did Ham- was, was Hamilton only putting that out there as, as kind of a bluff? I don't know. I, he wasn't cunning enough to bluff, really. He, you know, if he said something, he meant it. So, uh, and he knew, I mean, he even acknowledges when he was giving the speech that these ideas are far in advance of, you know, of anything that's been discussed before. So he knew he was an outlier, but this is, this is probably the system he would have wanted. I mean, I'm sure he imagined that this guy would be the uh, executive for life, you know, as all these people would have. I mean, they know if they pick a, if there's going to be an individual executive, it's going to be this man. There was just no doubt about that. So Hamilton, having been Washington's aide during the war, is, you know, not uncomfortable with the fact of him being the uh, executive for Do life. Do you think his close relationship with Washington um, contributed to him wanting a monarch, having Washington be the father of the country. Well, sure, but, but you know, they all feel that. And one of the, one of the South Carolinians, a man named Pierce Butler, uh, he writes a letter to his brother after the convention is over, and he says, you know, we... Entre nous, he uses the French phrase. He says, we may have given too much power uh, to the president because of our high opinion of the virtues of the first man who's going to hold that office. And so uh, perhaps, you know, in death, he will end up being, you know, uh, doing damage to the country because his example was so awesome that we, we gave it, you know, all this power. So... Everybody felt that pull, and and some people even worried about the pull they felt. Okay, next. Did the absence of Jefferson and Adams make any difference at the convention? Clinton Rossiter wrote that if Adams had been there, it probably would have lasted two more weeks, (laughs) but would have come out where it came out. And Adams had written a book in defense of the constitutions of the United States, He's in Europe at the time. But, but delegates here had read Adams's book. And Adams was saying, look, the systems you, you've all created in the states, which except for Pennsylvania, they were all two house legislatures and, and one governor. Adams was saying, uh, these are good. Uh, you're on the right track. Stay on that track. So he was certainly in sync with the views of, um, of all these people. And Jefferson, too. I mean, Madison is briefing Jefferson as this is going on. And, and you know, Jefferson makes some objections, but he, uh, he trusts Madison, and, and Madison is very informed and persuasive. So, so Jefferson signs off on it, too. Are you aware of the American Promise Initiative to pass the 28th Amendment? No. If, what one is this? If yes, do you well, no. So I can't even ask anymore. I don't know. I... I uh, I know the 20th. I think I've heard of something. I don't know if, yes, do you believe we can pass it by July? Well, he doesn't know what it is, so I think. Well, I, I do know that yeah. the, 
that the 27th Amendment was one of the first 12 to come out of Congress in 1789, and that was not passed until 1992. So that holds the record for the longest uh, gestation of, you know, an amendment leaving Congress before it's passed. Oh, okay. So to um, modify the First Amendment, then. Okay. Wasn't the oval that wasn't the goal of the Constitutional Convention to undo the Articles of Confederation and replace it with something better? Well, yes, it did. Yes, yes. Many men wore knee-length stockings <laughs> and culottes. Did Governor Gouverneur Morris? show his wooden leg, or did he wear long pants? Uh, He showed his wooden leg. He showed his wooden leg, and in fact, when he he goes to France, which we'll hear about uh, in the next lecture, and he becomes the minister to France, and he's presented at court, and he is told that he need not wear the ceremonial sword that ministers are expected to wear because it will... You know, it will just look odd hanging yeah. next to his leg. So this is a favor that the mm-hmm. that the Louis the Sixteenth uh, gives him. Now I remember when we first got together on this. Uh, Rick had uh, emailed uh, Louise Mira and myself. It was about a year before the two hundredth anniversary of Gouverneur Morris's death. Right. To do a program and. Which was 2016. He okay. dies in 1816. So I said to Rick, I called him and I said, Rick, nobody knows who Gouverneur Morris is. No one's going to come. Uh, let's talk. Let's have dinner. You tell me all about him and let's see what we could come up with. And um, he was so fascinating. I said, we have to take this to the stage. We did a general, Gouverneur, uh, Hamilton's best friend to start. Um, but I you, you were attracted to him, as many women have been. <laughs> He's making that up because. Oh no, if, I'm not making that up. If 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 if, if, if you look at the photo, I, I mean, I just the, the not the photo, the the portrait. Anyway, no, you described him very attractively. That's true. Um, now now I forgot what I was going to say. Okay. <laughs> Well, what happened was I still had the dilemma, how do we present this to the public and put it in our brochure? An evening with Gouverneur Morris, um, Rick Rukeyser on Gouverneur Morris. I, I still, people do like Rick, but you, you need a little more oomph in there. And it took me so long. I was reading and went online. I finally found an article that Rick wrote, and I'm reading it. And in it, it said, Gouverneur Morris was at... was at Hamilton's deathbed. I think, I didn't know if they said holding his hand, but he was going, going, Hamilton asked him to take care of his wife and children, and it said he was Hamilton's best friend. And that's how we got our series started here. Okay. So with life expectancy being much shorter in the 1780s, did the founders foresee the phenomenon of the career politician when drafting the Constitution? 
How would they have responded to the same person holding office in the Senate, House of Represent or uh, Senate or House of Representatives for decades? Well, they did. They did bring up term limits. Uh, they called it rotation. That that was the phrase at the time. Um, should people rotate through offices? In other words, should should there be a limit on how long you could be there? Uh, and and there were pro and con. There were pro and con speeches, and um, so so. This was an issue they considered, and they they decided not to have rotation, uh, to you know to to let people be reelected, and uh, one uh, one reason for that was that, that they won't try and stuff their pockets if they only have one shot, you know. Now, of okay. course, people stuff their their pockets when they uh, uh, have a long time to sit there, but uh, and then on the life expectancy point, I mean it's. It's tricky because there were childhood diseases, and then there were also some diseases like yellow fever, which really cut a swath. But if you if you avoided the latter and if you escaped the former, your life expectancy was was pretty similar to ours. Uh, you know, Jefferson dies in his eighties. John Adams is ninety. Um, John Adams held the record for the longest lived president until quite recently. I think it was Gerald Ford who first first broke it. So uh, so it, you know if you, if you didn't if you didn't die as a, as an infant and if you didn't get yellow fever you were probably pretty good. You said most travel was by water because the roads were bad. The roads were terrible. Um, Abigail Adams got lost trying to go to Washington DC to join her husband there in the new nation's capital. Her uh, coachman got lost south of Baltimore, um, and that, that was not unusual. The roads were, there, there were a few okay roads, but mostly, forget it. Okay, here's the question. Why did John Adams and the Massachusetts delegates travel via coach to the First Continental Congress? Well, uh, New York to Philadelphia was probably one of the best stretches you know, and also also okay. Boston to New York, not bad. But if you were going, say, west or south, south of Philadelphia, you know, you, good luck. Okay. All right, next question. How did they decide on the Electoral College? Ah, that was like a, a real last-minute puzzle. And, and the question is, how do we pick the president? And there was... Um, there was one delegate, James Wilson, who was who was for a popular vote, but um, you know he was very lonely in that. So um, at one point, um, Congress was going to pick the president, and then they thought, well, maybe the Senate should pick the president, and and there were just problems with those alternatives because then your uh, the fear was corruption that if you had um, an in-place body of people who are going to make this choice, then you know, you know ahead of time who these people are and you can get to them. And the bad example they're thinking of is, is Poland, which had an elected king. And the reason Poland disappears in the 1790s, it's carved up by Prussia and Austria and Russia, and they do like salami, you know, they keep taking slices. And the way they accomplish this is each one of them bribed nobles in the Polish, I guess it was called the Senate, and these were the men who picked, who voted on the king. 
So they were trying to get their own king in there, and the, the, the end was no Poland. And, and all these men knew about this history. This was current history. It was happening. And so they, they didn't want that to happen here. And so the Electoral College seemed like a way to have um, like a pop-up, you know, a pop-up body that would just be a one-time thing, and they'd, they would assemble, and they'd have their directions from the states that picked them, but then they'd pick the president, and then they'd be gone. You know, so this, this meant that um, foreign countries would have less, uh, less opportunity to meddle. So that, that was one of the big... Well, yes, they find other ways, of course. But, but that, was, um, that was one of the big reasons uh, for it. And it's an odd... It is a very odd system. And we amended it in 1804 with the, with the 12th Amendment, which um, really recognized presidential tickets, which, which we didn't have until then. But that was why we got it. Okay, we have a minute left. Okay. So I thought we'd just take the audience to the beginning of the next program. Okay, this is uh, Hamilton's best friend in the French Revolution. And one of the interesting things about this man's career is that he sees one revolution up close. He's been at Valley Forge. He's been at the Constitutional Convention. He knows all the players. He admires this man above everyone else. This guy's his old friend, And then in February 1789, for business, he goes to Paris. He's never been to Europe. He's always wanted to go. Uh, This is both an opportunity to make money and also spring break. And, of course, this is February 1789, and in July, the Bastille falls. So he keeps a diary when he gets to Paris because he wants to record all his experiences and all his new impressions and as he's living and writing and living his life, the bottom falls out of the society. Well, was he, he there the when the Bastille fell? Or did he was he, there when he was, the, there. he was in Paris. He goes to see it the day after. He gets in a carriage and goes down to what's now the Place de la Concorde and uh, uh, sees the walls uh, that have, you know, being torn down. Uh, and he's there through the reign of terror and... Um, writes it all up in his diary, and it's, uh, it's a little bit like cabaret at a higher social level. You know, okay. people just uh, living their lives, but then suddenly this vortex opens up. Well, that's our next program, and we thank you all for coming. Um, thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcasts. To learn more about current exhibitions and live programming, Follow New York Historical Society on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at NYHistory, or visit us at nyhistory.org.